Hi, everyone. This is Patrick Donahoe. Welcome to episode four of the Wealth Standard podcast. We are on the second season of 2018, and we are theming our podcast around the principle of liberty, which is the pursuit of financial freedom. Now, the individual, the guy that I'm going to interview today, it was, uh, it was awesome to meet him, first off. And you may not know him. He's been on a few TV shows before. Uh, one is uh, The Secret Millionaire, uh, as well as The Startup Kids and Startups, uh, the Silicon Valley edition. And he also self-published a book called Jabocalypse. And uh, it says the end of his subtitle is The End of Human Jobs and How Robots Will Replace Him. And uh, he's one of those serial entrepreneurs. He's working on a really cool company right now called Digits.io. If you go to that website, man, you're going to see just a, a really robust board of advisors. And it's around blockchain, around uh, kind of the cryptocurrency worlds. And uh, it's pretty fascinating. And uh, we definitely have a uh, part of our interview dedicated to that, uh, to that business. But he has an awesome story. And I love stories. I love seeing where people, where people come from. Uh, and he's from the UK, originally came to the US, uh, but you know, really did well during the, the dot-com era and everything came crashing down, learned tons of lessons. And he's just one of those guys that pushes the limits. And I love, uh, love hearing those stories. So you guys are definitely going to enjoy it. Make sure you go back to listen to the first three episodes of 2018, as well as our first season, which uh, when we talked about life, which is you are your greatest asset. All those are available on our website, which is thewealthstandard.com or on iTunes. And you know, giving us those reviews definitely help. Uh, we get more listeners every day. So we're really appreciative of those. If you have not given us a review and you like what you hear, please head over to iTunes and uh, give, us a, give us a review. If you take a picture of it and send it to podcast at paradigmlife.net, we will send you off uh, a little gift. All right, everyone, without further ado, here's my interview with Ben Way. Welcome to the 2018 seasons of the Wealth Standard Podcast. Celebrating life, liberty, and property. You are listening to Liberty Season Two. Ben, it's uh, it's awesome to have you on. You look good. You look really relaxed. Pleasure. Where are you joining you us from well. today? I'm in uh, beautiful Florida. Well, not so beautiful today. It's a little bit cloudy, but uh, I can't complain. You probably got some palm trees in your view, so even with the clouds, it's probably still still pretty beautiful. Indeed, indeed. Well, I try. I I, I moved from the UK for obvious reasons. <laughs> uh, so the weather here is much better. Amen to that. I love, I love South Florida. Well, Ben, it's a, uh, this, I can't wait for this interview. I mean, you, you've done some pretty remarkable things. Uh, I'll, I'll highlight some accolades that I mentioned in the inter, in the intro. Uh, but you, you've been on a few TV shows, uh, you've written a book, uh, and you're still really, really young. Uh, so maybe give us just a, a, a you know, highlighted overview of your, of your bio, your background, and how you kind of went off on this, this uh, kind of tech, tech transit, or uh, uh, yeah, this, Ab this yeah, absolutely. with technology and startups. <clears throat> and so forth. Yeah, I mean, I, I, if you start right at the beginning, my, uh, you know, I, it was, my entire life was built from coming from a pretty poor background um, where, you know, educationally I was written off as a kid because I was dyslexic. And I was very lucky at about six or seven years old to get a laptop from the local government and just got very good at computers, uh, self-taught myself everything. I, I've never read a manual in my life. 
And I actually attribute that to something we don't talk about um, much in society, which is that there is actually a skill to learning. And, and fortunately, because my teacher locked me in a room uh, by myself uh, for many, uh, many days on end, I, I taught myself how to learn. And uh, so I self-taught myself computers and always had a fascination with business. Uh, my first, I grew up on a farm, so my first business was selling chicken's eggs and I had a proper cash flow and the whole shebang and some uh, unusual risk factors in that business like foxes and uh, <laughs> all that jazz. Um, and then I uh, started my first business at 15. I uh, was very lucky just to hit the timing right, uh, the whole dot-com boom was happening at that point, started uh, an internet company, uh, raised $33 million when I was 17 for what was back then, a bit like Google Shopping, but 10 years before Google Shopping. Uh, during that time, I ended up advising the UK government, ended up advising the White House on the rollout of, of UTMS technology, and then uh, lost everything completely. Um, the girl I loved, my house. I didn't go bankrupt, but it was pretty close. Uh, and uh, so started completely again from scratch. And one way or another, which is a story for a different day, uh, started Europe's first incubator uh, called The Rainmakers. And over the last uh, 15, 20 years, I'm getting old now, um, we've probably helped two, 250 companies get to product market fit. Wow. Uh, we've had some great successes, some failures, like always. Um, but, you know, I'm very passionate about what I do. I love technology. I love, you know, my passions are robotics, artificial intelligence, age reversal, life extension. I love hardware. I love building things. I'm, you know, if I'm being facetious, I'm the jack of all trades, the master of none. But I try hard and I love learning and I'm always learning. And as long as I'm learning, I, I think... That's why we're here, right? No, amen to that. What, what would you, you know, with everything you've done, and I know you're still doing a lot, a lot more, and we'll talk about your most current business in a second, but what is, you know, when, when, you, when you wake up, what is it that, that drives that? Like, what have you identified as why you're doing what you're doing? I'm sure you asked those questions, you know, back when you had some, some business, sounded like you had a pretty, you know, catastrophic business failure, but what, you know, what did you, what have you come to a conclusion of as far as what is that kind of seed, that seed that keeps, uh, that keeps fueling you? It's, it's actually a, uh, it's actually something very challenging, which is that, that I, because, probably because my childhood and because it was a very difficult childhood and because I was written off as a kid, I have never felt successful in any way, shape, sense, or form. Mm -hmm. And even though I know objectively people look at me and they're like, wow, you've done this and this and you've had this most amazing life. And I do have an amazing life. I have a, you know, I, but internally what, what I wake up in the morning feeling is I've got so much more to achieve or I haven't achieved enough or, you know, I want to make an impact. You know, I want to make an impact on this world. I want to, you know, do something positive and I want to help people and, and it's that it's that that keeps driving me forward. I, w I would love to say it, it, it was, you know, that 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 I wake up in the morning and and I'm feel like I'm lucky to be alive. But it's not. It's just the fear of 
of not achieving what I want to achieve in my lifetime. Mm. That's an, it's, it's interesting, you know, how those moments when we're young, right. And it could have been one moment or a series of them that, you know, plant something in us that, you know, we carry throughout our, our lives. And I, I have, I have, you know, relatively little kids. I have a four year old, a 12 year old and a 13 year old. And I'm always thinking about that. Like, man, what are they, what are they thinking about, you know, these moments and their experiences that's going to be planted in them and really define a lot of their motivations in the future. I think it's, I think it's interesting. And, but with the whole idea of achievement, because I can, I can uh, sympathize with, with you, empathize to an extent uh, based on my background. And, but in the end, you know, achievement, uh, where have you found achievement? But then also when you didn't achieve something, how have you dealt with the, the failure of, of not achieving what you had set your mind to? Um, well, the, 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 the thing that, that as I look along my life that I'm most proud of and the biggest achievement for me was actually writing my book. Um, you know, I actually wrote it. I didn't get a ghostwriter. I, I sat down and I wrote a bloody book. And because I didn't have any formal qualifications or anything like that, it's the one thing that I feel that's, that nobody can take away from me. Mm-hmm. Like whatever, whatever people think about whether I'm successful or a failure, I wrote a bloody book. <laughs> <laughs> and that for me is, is you know, a, a, beautiful, a beautiful thing. And, and uh, you know, I really, yeah, I'm really glad I did that because it was a huge challenge, a huge personal goal. Um, in terms of dealing with failure... It gets easier um, over time. Um, I think. I think the downside to that is over time you you uh, res- you pull in or you you restrain your expectations, and you kind of you know you. I wouldn't say you kind of become uh, glass half empty, but certainly you don't have the same kind the the same kind of wide eyed mysticism or belief that you have. You know, you're kind of much more realistic and you kind of understand the failure points and you realize that whatever you do about 50-50, well, you know, whatever you do about 30% is skill, 30% is luck and 30% is timing and 10% is who knows what. <laughs> but, uh, you know, it's, it really is, there is a, a, a level that's completely out of your control and you just have to accept that. And, and my biggest problem you know, throughout my careers, I've always been about 10 years too early. I mean, you know, I can't tell you the number of businesses that, that I, uh, I conceptualized 10 years before that suddenly, you know, become multi-billion dollar businesses 10 years later, but I get into them too early and the technology is not there or it's too hard. And, you know, that's the whole, that's the whole Apple mantra, isn't it? Never be a trailblazer. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Always, always. So, be yeah. So that that's the that that's definitely one of my challenges. Well, I look at you know I look at what you've what you've been able to do, and we can get get into the book the book right now. You know, but it's it's one of those one of those things where you know the idea of failure I think is ingrained in us based on education and learning, right? And that's why I thought I found it was fascinating where you talked about you know how to learn how to learn. And, and I think that's profound because sometimes, you know, especially in the U.S., and I know you, you, were, you went to school in the U.K., but in the U.S., right, it, you basically are considered a failure, right, if you don't have good grades, 
right? Now, I know that there's some justification to that, but in the end, that's what most children think when they get bad grades. They think they're stupid. They think they're a failure. And I look at learning, and that's not learning, right? I think learning is failure, but yet the context of failure, right, is that you are, have, have fallen short or you're somehow, you know, stupid or inadequate or not smart. And, you know, I, I, I've made that connection where, you know, making mistakes, failing, right? In the end, it's teaching, it's teaching you. And, and I think we're in the, the hotbed of some pretty revolutionary technologies uh, regarding every aspect, every aspect of life. And, and so why don't you just maybe briefly talk about your book, which is Jabocalypse, is that how you pronounce it? Jabocalypse. Yeah, exactly how you pronounce it. Yeah, the end of human jobs and how robots will replace them. I mean, talk talk about that because that's one of those like stimulating titles where you know you're you want you're intrigued to learn more. Yeah, so you know, it's very interesting. Uh, I wrote that book now, God, five years ago when it came out. Everyone, like everything in my life, laughed at me and said you're crazy and you know it's what the Luddites said and look you know before any revolution it's very hard to see the wood for the trees right you know the number of industries I've been that have been decimated by competition they didn't see coming up it's exactly the same for humanity as a whole you know AI robotics automation it it may not be having an immediate effect, but it will have a fundamental transition point where it suddenly becomes a real problem for society. And my belief is that transition point will be the next major recession. Because when you're growing as an economy, you, and, you know, an organization is operating, you know, relatively inefficiently, but operating, then there's a huge risk in changing the way anything is done. <clears throat> but what you see in downturns is that companies have no choice but to take those risks. So I think what you're going to see in the next major recession is a major swing to automation. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm not sure whether we'll recover fully. I mean, one of the trends I put out in my book is that, uh, you know, every the recovery for every recession since like 1920 has doubled um, in its recovery period. I'm not sure it will recover the next time. I think at that point, we're probably going to see the tipping point where automation really does push this divide even further. Hmm. No, it's, it, the, point, the point you're making, I think, applies to a lot of different aspects of, of life at like a biological level as well as business and people where you know, when there is a, an environment of extreme pressure, right? in this case, a recession, Right. That's when, you know, the, the human mind kind of takes over, right, and is essentially forced to survive. And that's where you discover shortcuts and you, you know, you, you take risks because the risk at a level where there's extreme pain isn't really, there's not much risk associated with the pain or there's not much pain associated with the risk. And, and so that's, I totally agree because I think right now you still have people clinging, right, and I would say not people, industries, and there's a lot of them and probably all of them from auto, you know, from cars to, uh, to financial, uh, to politics, to transportation, right? There's technology that exists right now that is not being highly adopted. 
And I think that you're, you're totally spot on with the idea of a recession is going to essentially push companies to take those risks. Okay. Because they're already in pain. They're already suffering. Taking a risk isn't going to make it worse really. Exactly. Exactly. And, and it's going to be fascinating to see what, what comes out of that. And then you have all the, you know, with robotics, you have all these kind of moral and social kind of pitfalls and environments. It's going to be, is it the Chinese proverb? Or actually, I believe it's a curse. May we live in interesting times. Yeah. Well, I, I think as, as, as a civilization right now, we're for many reasons in one of the most interesting phases of our, of our society. And it'd be interesting to see when we come out of this, which way the pendulum has swung, whether we have become a more isolated, more protective, protective society, or whether we become a more open and, uh, uh, you know, more of a sharing society. But, you know, my belief and, and one of my great sadnesses in life was that I always had a fundamental belief that if you shared more information or you provided more information to the populace of a civilization, that that civilization would um, uh, come together more and, you know, existing social barriers would break down or political barriers. Or, but it, this doesn't seem, we don't seem to be operating um, in that way as a society. And that has, that has shocked me. So what do you, to come to those conclusions, what are some of the examples you see of, because this is fascinating, because I, I would say you're right. I mean, there's, there's always a threshold of information, right? There's only so much there's only so much our brain can process at any given moment. And we tend to, you know, form habits and any new information is difficult, is difficult to absorb, especially if it's contrary to a belief system you already have. Uh, but I, I do see that, you know, the, uh, the ability to communicate and share uh, in some ways has, has had the opposite effect of, uh, than what you think, right? Where it's divided people more so than brought them together. Absolutely, and one of my one of my passions or hobbies in life is looking at failed states: Venezuela, uh, Zimbabwe, uh, North Korea, uh, Russia. Uh, not that it's such a failed state, but uh, an interesting state nonetheless. And and you know, Russia was probably the first time about six or seven years ago that I realized that this kind of doctrine of of opening or information being available and, and giving power back to the people isn't, isn't correct. It's, uh, there, there's something broken in the way us humans operate um, that, uh, that I'm still trying to get a handle on exactly what the psychological component is, but I think there is a... My belief is along the lines that there is a certain large percentage of the population that that are so fearful of change that they're prepared to grasp what they know so much stronger because they want that level of internal protectionism and um you know and i and you know i i i say this when people talk about the kind of you know what happened with trump and the whole election and you know how could anybody vote for trump and you know i look at it the opposite way i'm like if you live in a small rural town 
in America, you know you're screwed. <laughs> things carry on if things carry on the way they, they do they are with technology with society you're screwed right we you know our whole society is set up um, uh, uh, to live in cities metropolises um, you know if you if you are a farmer or somebody unskilled and there's a vast majority of, of the population that, that are, then you are looking after your own best interests um, by by being scared of what's coming coming up and and you can't blame people for that you, you know you got you just got to look at them and just like you know I understand that I understand that fear and and it takes a lot to to step over that chasm of of you know the new future because it doesn't look like the old future and the question is can we get there mm-hmm. well it's one of the you know I, I talk a lot about the, the whole Maslow's Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? And I think the first need that people seek, right, is survival, right? They they need, you know, the elements, food, shelter, clothing to serve to survive. Right. And then it comes to a safer. So if you go if you kind of go through those rungs in the in the hierarchy uh, hierarchy, you can kind of see where people's motivation is. Cause it's it's interesting right now, I saw this article yesterday that that stated that you know over 40 percent of, of america can't pay uh can't pay like their their rent and their bills yeah i saw that you saw, saw that. that and and it's one and it's one of those you know going to the point that you were making people are afraid when you're afraid and you're in that kind of lower rung right you're just trying to survive and the way in which you think right is different than if you did have you know, a, a, a knowledge of how to make money, a knowledge of you're in a safe environment, a knowledge that you have, you know, your relationships intact. If you don't have those things, then it's like survival of the fit. It, like you're trying, you're just trying to survive. And so some decisions in that, with that perspective, sometimes don't make sense to the person, uh, maybe like, like you or, or me that are in this, you know, self-esteem, self-actualized phase. Does that, does that make sense? We look at things differently. Absolutely. And I almost call it economic slavery, right? Mm-hmm. You, are, you are a slave to your job because you literally have no bandwidth for anything else apart from to make enough money to survive. So mm-hmm. even if you know the steps you need to take to make more money or better yourself or get better education, you are literally unable to take those steps because to take those steps means that you you can't survive Mm-mm. so you are literally a slave to your job yep and um you know i've i you know i don't come from a rich background and and you know i've i've lived um you know in some pretty cool, poor communities and you know it's hell it's it's you know if, if you if you don't if you don't get lucky, and I consider myself lucky, you know, I, I had, you know, I was written off as a kid. I, I should have ended up being a farmer, milking cows. But uh, you know, I happened because of my dyslexia to get a laptop that happened to bring me into the largest growth sector the world has ever seen. But that was not. <laughs> I'd love to say I planned it, but I didn't. Well, yeah. Well, and that's the, you know, and this could, we could go off on a total tangent, tangent here, right? Where, you know, the, the resources are there, right? For anyone, even for a farmer, for, for anyone that knows how to, well, even to learn how to read, 
all the resources are there and pretty much all of it is, you know, close to free. It just comes down to, you know, the environment that you're in and whether or not you will use the tools, the resources in your environment uh, to, to, to be successful, to grow, to, ex, you know, excel, right? And that was the case with you. Like you were in a certain environment mentally, socioeconomically, and you got, an, and you got a computer and you're in that environment and you were kind of forced to figure out how to use that to improve your life, right? Because I think we're all driven by that to an extent. But it's one of those, you know, and I'll, I'll give it, I didn't plan on giving this, this example, but my, you know, my wife is from uh, Mexico, not a really, you know, nice part of Mexico. And her mom still lives there. And it's a really bad neighborhood. We actually, uh, in the last couple of days, have had to move them out um, because God, there was a, kind of a gun, a couple of people got killed, crazy time just in the neighborhood that we used, that we used to visit like every year. And, and it's one of those things her mom, right, her mindset is shifting a little bit as to not wanting to be there anymore, but it took extreme circumstances in order to change her mind. And that's where it's, you know, when we were talking before the show, you know, the jabocalypse, the whole idea of robotics, you know, taking over human jobs, it's coming. You can't avoid it. It's kind of like, you know, the trade is coming, right? It's just a matter of time, you know? Yeah. And, and the idea is it's going to replace menial labor. It's going to replace so, so much. And there's one or two things that are going to happen, like the divide that you talked about. People are either going to take the opportunity, right, to figure out how to establish new skills, move, okay, change their life, change their lifestyle, change their mentality, or they're just going to have to, to fight. And we all know what's going to happen to that fight. I mean, history has shown us that. Right. Yeah, I, I would. I would agree. I mean, you know, as much as I, um, you know, always look at the positive, you know, in in the world, and and you know, always believe, you know, we can find a way through. I think there's going to be a huge amount of uh, social upheaval uh, when it when we get to that point, and and it will be a very fast tipping point um, because, you know, we are. I would say we're around. 70% uh, of the technical requirements of replacing human completely. And our limitation isn't actually the, uh, the brain anymore. It's, you know, our artificial intelligence is actually way ahead of where the physical robotics is. So the, the mechanisms, the actuators, it's, it's really... Um, uh, it's really going to hit very fast when, when somebody builds something that can replicate 90% of all human activities, it's going to, within five years, it's going to, it's just going to tip incredibly fast. And again, this is an environment we've never been in, right? So as far as how society is going to respond, one, one thing I guess you can rest, rest on because you know, this is what's been proven in the past is that in those environments, that's where human beings thrive, right? When there's extreme adversity, we, fig we figure it out. And we always have. There's always been turmoil. There's always been war. There's always been conflict since the beginning of time, right? Just, you know, maybe it's, it's more known today because of communication, but I think that's, you know, there's a human tendency to have conflict. But I think in those, in those moments, that's where human beings sometimes shine. And, you know, that, that's what we can rest on but in the end, there is going to be social upheaval. There's going to be those situations where people are going to be presented with that choice. 
to acclimate and change their mindset, okay, or shrink, right? Those are going to yeah. be the two choices. And I think also there's this kind of general view in the humanity that because we are the most intelligent species we've ever encountered, uh, that we're, you know, somehow special, or so, you know, so, you know, what I want people to understand is we're an imperfect species in an imperfect world. Yep. And if we just accepted that and actually just as a species go, okay, look, we are pretty flawed, then it may help us move past this particular challenge. I mean, you know, as I, as I say, you know, I'm writing a, well, I've actually finished a book. I'm going to, uh, finding a publisher at the moment, but I've just written my second book. Um, which is all about artificial consciousness. And so you've got artificial intelligence, which is, you know, the ability for, for technology to learn. But artificial consciousness is, is what makes us human, consciousness. Mm -hmm. And I, I believe that there is no reason why technology cannot have a consciousness. Uh, technically, I believe that at some point, once the right system exists, then consciousness, artificial consciousness will exist. That, when that happens, is going to be so fundamentally scary for humanity because for the first time in our lives, we will not uh, be the most intelligent uh, species on this planet. And the implications for that and, and everything that goes around that is, is, is going to be huge. And I think we're you know, 30 to 50 years away from that, but... Who knows? I mean, you know, we're, you know, in AI, what we're doing today, 10 years ago would look like magic. Mm -hmm. Well, dude, when that book comes out, I'm totally interviewing you again, because that <laughs> is something I've thought a lot about. And, you know, I would say, in a sense, it presupposes that, you know, consciousness or awareness can't expand in the human mind, right, which it can't, which I believe it can. Uh, but it's, it's one of those you know, this is a topic. I mean, imagine 50 years ago, like trying to explain this topic to people, right? It's, it's amazing how, how much we've, how much we've progressed just as a society uh, and, and, and have evolved. And that's kind of where my, my, my hope is. So maybe let's, I, I want to talk about your, your company, but maybe let's kind of put, put this, put this topic in trend transition by, uh, you know, by me asking the question, you know, if you, uh, I don't know if you have ki kids or not, but if you were talking to like a, a 10 year old, right. Or a 15 year old, right. And you had two hours, right. You were similar to when you were, you know, forced into a room to learn. Right. And you were forced to talk to this 10 year old, 10 year old. What would you, what, what would you encourage them to do? What would you encourage as far as, you know, whether it's a pursuit of education or pursuit of uh, just society and being a good citizen. I mean, what, what would those topics of conversation be? What would that, what would that advice be? Yeah, that's an interesting question. It's, you know, for me, there's kind of a few ways I look at it on an educational front. I would, I would, um, encourage them to focus on anything that, that contains creativity, right? Creativity is going to be the, the, the hardest, uh, uh, barriers for AI to jump over, and there, it will eventually. So I would I would say focus on on creativity, especially creativity within technology. If, you know, especially entertainment. You know, computer games. You know, anything that is 
that is uh, that, that mm. has a creative technical component to it. Um, I would say more than anything to my children, enjoy your life. You know, don't don't try and you know don't kill yourself trying to over educate yourself and miss out on the best time of your life, which is when you're young and. Mm -hmm. You know, everything is about balance and you need, you know, as a kid, you need that balance to actually experience life, make the mistakes. I would tell my children, and this is actually something I've been, I've been seeing lately, um, is that it seems like this generation coming up is very scared of taking any risks yep. outside of, outside of the, 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 the kind of norm, which, which can be quite big risks, but they're kind of normal risks now. It's like, okay, you can, you know, do a YouTube channel, but you know, everyone's doing a YouTube channel. So it's not much of a risk. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I want my children to take risks, go and explore, go and explore the world. Don't be static. Um, help people, you know, the, that is the greatest uh, asset you can provide humanity is to help other humans that you're along this journey with. Doesn't necessarily mean you have to work in a soup kitchen, but always think about what you're doing how could that ultimately benefit mm -hmm. you know the the population as a whole um so yeah that's you know i i think it's gonna be difficult i think it's gonna be i think for the generation you know when i have children i think it's gonna be a very very challenging time to to you know for children because you know the other thing that that i i believe is we no longer have innocence you know i remember growing up you know, until I was, you know, maybe 15, there was a certain level of innocence to the world. I don't think kids have that anymore. I think from a very early age, they have to grow up much, much. And I had to grow up fast, you know, I had to grow up very fast. But I think kids these days grow up even faster. And, yep. and you know, I think that's sad because there is, there is something beautiful about innocence. And, and, you know, I think that's, eroding well you've been very stoic with your with your uh feedback and advice because it's because it's, it's it's true and i i look at you know kids and you're right they the innocence is gone i mean they're exposed to everything from a super early age whether you want them to be or not and and, it, and it's hard but i would say there's a beauty in being vulnerable right and i think that a lot of adults i mean it sounds like you've you've uh, learned a lot of that that's what i've learned in the last several several years is there is a power right around being vulnerable and being willing to say you're not smart and you don't know everything and, and you make mistakes and, you know, and that's uh, I think there's a lot of power behind that because it opens up your mind to just tremendous opportunity and, and experience, right? Which I think that's what we're all trying to have is fulfilling, you know, meaningful experiences, right? Exactly. Exactly. Okay, so this is a total transition to, you know, your company right now, which uh, I think is fascinating. It's one of those, you know, technologies that's ripe. Uh, it, well, the, the actual industry itself and, this, and the functionality, right, is right now primarily controlled by, by banking institutions, right? The institutions that I would say, you know, they're losing it, but they still have a, a tremendous influence, right, over legislature, uh, over uh, people, uh, over advertising, right, which is, uh, you know, financial services. So talk to us about Digits. Uh, it's digits.io is the website. We'll put that on the uh, show notes and on the uh, website and social media. But talk to us about Digits and, 
you know, what, what it does and how it's revolutionizing uh, the security associated with financial payments. Yeah, so around uh, three years ago, I joined a traditional payments company, a, a company that, pay, that processes payments for Visa, MasterCard, Amex, etc. At that point, I had no payments experience at all. And, um, you know, when you swipe your credit card, you don't really think about it that much. I mean, one of the, one of the uh, crazy things about America is that in America, you have to choose credit or debit. We don't have that in the UK. So I, I didn't know why that existed and learned why that existed. And what you learn about the payments industry is it's incredibly fragmented. There's lots of entrenched players, uh, very risk adverse. And uh, so as we were going through this process about a year ago, I recognized that we should have a crypto strategy. And I was given the task of making uh, crypto payments as simple as paying with your credit card. And I took that quite literally and came up with a concept that allows you to turn any credit or debit card in the world, including the ones in your pocket, into a crypto card. But that kind of created two big problems because even though I worked out how I could get a consumer to swipe uh, and pay with crypto and it comes out of their crypto account, I was left with the two biggest problems in crypto payments, which is there's a lot of volatility and also the payments are instant. It can take 10 minutes, 20 minutes, 30 minutes for that money to actually hit the other account. So um, I had to uh, come up with a way to solve that because merchants don't like volatility. They want to get the amount of money they're spending at the exact time they're spending it. And they want, they, uh, they don't want the risk of, uh, of having to wait 30 minutes to know whether that payment's actually gone through because they're giving you the product. So I came up with something called to, on the back end. So the front end of digits is really simple. You swipe card, it takes the crypto. But on the uh, on the crypto uh, on the um, other side, I had to solve these two big problems. And we came up with a new financial instrument called the Hedge Lending Network, which is a new financial instrument that basically solves those two big the two biggest problems in payments. Uh, in crypto payments, which is volatility and network transmission time. So we've kind of built this this kind of engine and we want people to build upon it as well. I've built the products a little bit like Google. They're totally separate products and people can build upon them. Um, but it's really a, a solution that, that just makes crypto simpler so more people can use it. And we know if more people can use it, more people can access it. That takes down the barriers to entry. We're especially excited in in the area of the unbanked or underbanked where you know we can really provide facilities that a lot of these people haven't been able to access before and um we're we're currently uh uh in pre-ico and we're going to do an ico in september and we're on that path well there is i mean the, the that world i would say for especially for those kind of in the the upper echelon of you know financial services and uh, which includes banking, you know, in, insurance, investments, right? They, I think they're, they're starting to see the, the significance, you know, of blockchain, of, of being able to, you know, raise money through ICO. Uh, and uh, and do, do you think that there is a, a, a fear associated with, with that? Or how do you see, you know, some of the bigger institutions and their openness to technologies such as yours? I think uh, I think it's a little bit like 
the days of the internet, right? You know, at the beginning, big companies don't really see it coming up or they, they don't see the, uh, the, the uh, technologies, how it's going to impact them. And I think the same is true for crypto. I think right now there's a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, conservatism in the marketplace. I think a lot of institutions are holding back, but it's totally normal. They, you know, the, the, the amazing thing is, is that institutions can wait five years and then jump in when it's a Me Too product because they've got billions of dollars to back that up. They, mm-hmm. can, they can hedge their bets. So I think, you know, the way it's going to pan out is that the next five years, crypto will still be seen as a, a kind of niche product. But as it kind of matures, it's going to become a more mainstream product. And I, I think we have, you know, unless, unless, you know, the U.S. government did something really, really horrific in terms of regulations, I think we're past the point of no return in terms mm-hmm. of the technology. Um, you know, not, not far past it, but past it. And... Um, you know, as we know in crypto, you know, everything gets condensed. So we've, you know, the, the last two years has probably been the equivalent roller coaster ride of the dot com seven years. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I hope we've, we've had our boom, we've had our correction, and hopefully I think it will stable out. My personal view is that we're, you know, we're going we're gonna to see some stagnated growth before um, it goes big again. And that's, and that, again, that's, that's where you, you know, you have kind of the adoption cycle and, you know, the fa- the phases of anything new or phases of truth where, you know, it goes through those periods of skepticism, periods of mocking, right. And then extreme volatility. But then after that, that's when you have widespread adoption, right. Yeah. And it's accepted. So it's, it's so it's interesting to see, you know, just a lot of the, the technologies that are uh, being funded and and I think you know it's it's a it's a risky bet in, in a lot of uh, senses as far as uh, you know what technology what ICO what you know which which technology is going to work right or be applicable uh, but at the same time because of how much of it there is it's just a matter of time where they you know it's going to be a lot more a uh, lot more efficient and the adoption is going to be you know not not necessarily forced but you'd be just not smart. To not adopt it. So how do you how do you set digits apart from some of the other, you know, cryptocurrencies and blockchain technologies that have that have come out over the last few years? Well, I think I think we're we're kind of an application that sits above the blockchain. We're kind of a, a solution that provides a uh, an infrastructure to solve two big problems in crypto payments. I think uh, you know in terms of how we're different from everyone else. I mean, most companies trying to solve this problem are issuing physical cards, which is a you know, a huge challenge, a very costly process. Yep. Um, you know, you have all kinds of uh, potential issues with that, and we're coming at it from a very different different angle. Um, so, you know, I think we we've got some nice first adopter, uh, first mover advantage. Um, you know, like all, all these things, you know, it's crypto, it's a roller coaster ride, it's high risk, um, gives me a few more gray hairs. Um, <laughs> but, you know, we're, we're working hard, we've got a great team, we've got, I believe, a great concept, and we're trying to get out of there. Yeah, you have a very impressive uh, board of advisors, too. 
And I think oftentimes that is, I would say more than often, probably all the time is, you know, it's, it's really those advisors that come at business from a dozen different angles that you don't and, and you, you know, conceptualizing, uh, conceptualizing it, it really comes down to the team that, you know, protects from, you know, the foxes, as you put it in your uh, initial, you know, in your initial story. And, you know, it's one of those, it's one of those things where smart minds around you make, make a huge, a huge difference. Uh, maybe you can comment on that and then we can wrap things up. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, trust me, I know, you know, the one, the one, uh, the one good thing about having lived a lot of life and having uh, a lot of failures is you learn what you're good at and what you're bad at. So putting together a, a good team and, uh, you know, finding the areas that can complement your own weaknesses is, is the most important thing. And we brought together an exceptional team. They come from PayPal, Apple, uh, Ripple, uh, Visa, um, you know, exceptional team we put together. Um, and that's really all business is about. It's, you know, this is what people forget really when it, especially a business, you know, the, the smaller sizes of business, you know, it's all about people. Both your, your, your customers are still human beings and your team are still human beings and you're, you're all just trying to solve solutions, you know, solve problems for each other. Well, Ben, it was awesome to have you on. This has been a pretty fascinating conversation and, you know, I appreciate, I appreciate your time. Uh, we'll put all of your contact info on show notes and social media, but for those that are uh, listening, would you mind just uh, talking about the, the easiest ways to, to follow you or to learn more about digits? Yeah, absolutely. You can go to digits.io. You're always welcome to email me on b at digits.io. Um, on Twitter, Facebook, um, you know, I, one way or another, there's probably a thousand contact points out there for you to find me. Um, but yeah, uh, very accessible and, uh, uh, you know, thanks for your time. Okay. All right, Ben. Well, we'll uh, when your new book comes out, we'll definitely circle back and do, uh, do an interview. I find that topic fascinating, but congratulations. Best of luck with everything, man. Fantastic. Thank you very much. Thank you for joining us as the Wealth Standard Podcast spends all of 2018 celebrating life, liberty, and property. Be sure to leave us a review on iTunes, and we'll see you on the next one.